Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. My name is Dale, and I am joined by Steven, the XO. Hey there, everyone. Just want to apologize for any audio issues from me on the last episode. Doing some digging, it looks like we had some saboteurs messing with my audio. Yeah, that was probably the British. Dad, gum, Brits. I microwave my tea one time. Yeah, you microwave your tea, you have war declared. You have to seep it like a normal person. Well, sometimes I don't have the patient. And that's why you were sabotaged. But all is right in the world, folks. Audio's fixed and everything's back to normal. Wonderful. So today we are going to continue on with the battles of the War of 1812. We're going to talk about the engagements on Lake Ontario. Let's get underway. So the engagements on Lake Ontario, they covered a prolonged naval contest for control of the lake during the war. Few battles were fought, though, and none of them really had any decisive results, which, you know, is a huge theme during this entire war. And, you know, so this contest pretty much became a naval building race, sometimes referred to as the Battle of the Carpenters. You know, wooden boats, carpenters. Oh, yeah, no, I, I'm just imagining uh, my local carpenters union squaring up against the electricians union. Oh, there was no electricity here, though. Oh, excellent point. Plumbers union? I don't even know if they had indoor plumbing at this time. I'm so glad I don't live in the early 1800s. <laughs> so, when the war started, the British had an early advantage on the Great Lakes. They possessed a quasi-navy already. So, although they were not very manned or efficient, they were initially unopposed on Lake Erie and Lake Huron, which made very early decisive victories for Major General Isaac Brock. So on Lake Ontario, they possessed the ships Royal George and Prince Regent, and the brigs Earl of Moria and the Duke of Gloucester, based at the Kingston Royal Navy Dockyard. The schooners Seneca and Simico were also taken into service at this time. Now their chief officer was Commodore John Steele, who was 75 years old, possibly even older. So they retired him and replaced him with Commander Hugh Earl. Now, they did this just as the war was declared because they were worried about how sound his judgment might be at that age, or this just happened to line up with the war starting? Probably both. I mean, 75 years old in command of a theater of war? I don't know about you, but I don't know about this any 75-year-old I know that'd be of sound mind to where I would trust, you know, the lies of my sailors i mean but who better to uh, explain how they did it back in his day you know with two sticks and a rock and the entire ship had to share the rock no <laughs> <laughs> no that come on just imagine the glory for king and country though of trying to take out a fleet with a rock yeah that'll show us yankees i'm not selling you on this no you're not I i'm sorry i can't buy it <laughs> yeah money is not being paid out for that all right all right so, the Americans, at this time, only had one brig, the Juanita, under Lieutenant Woosley, and a small navy yard at Sackett's Harbor in New York. So, we covered the, the, the battle last time, for, on July 19th, when the five vessels attacked the Juanita in the first battle of Sackett's Harbor, and were beaten off. So, to redress matters, on September 3rd, the United States Navy appointed Commodore Isaac Chauncey, who was 
commanding the New York Navy Yard, and they transferred him over to command on the on the lakes. So Chauncey was in charge of the naval force on Lake Erie as well. He took little part in construction or operations over there on Lake Erie. He, so he, he mainly concentrated his attention on Lake Ontario. So to supplement Juanita, he purchased or just commandeered a number of trading vessels, including some Canadian schooners. He also hired large numbers of carpenters, shipwrights, and, you know, so on, and put them into Sackett's Harbor to construct proper fighting ships, as he called them. So ships of the line. The chief architects were Adam Brown, his brother Noah, and Henry Eckford. They launched the first ship, which was a corvette called Madison, on November 26th. The trees that they used to construct the hull from were still standing in September. So three months to put this corvette together. Wow. Or maybe even two. Uh, like, I know you said the... Uh at least in the UK, they had this down to practically assembly line levels of efficiency in regards from order being placed to ship being put to sea. That was here, not in the UK. Oh, that was... That was here. But, but yeah, that's what I'm... That was here? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying in the UK shipyards they had that efficiency, but even here, wow. No, we had the efficiency. The UK did not. Oh, wow. I mean, still, I, I can't imagine something of that scale, you know where everything was done with hand tools being completed like that. So, yeah, uh, to take the Madison into, as an example, she was 110 feet long. So her keel was 110 feet long, while her deck was 125 feet long. Her beam was 32 feet, 6 inches. She weighed 580 tons while still berthed, and she had 24 32-pound carronades. They did all that two to two and a half months. All right, modern carpenters, what's your excuse? They're not at war. Uh, that's that's an excuse. That That isn't a good reason. That's an excuse. You asked for an excuse. I gave you an excuse. You didn't ask for a reason. Uh, that's fine, fine. What's your reason? They're not at war. <laughs> so Chauncey hoisted his broad pennant on the, on the Juanita on November 6th and with his squadron pursued the British ship's Royal George or the British ship Royal George, to Kingston. He then got beaten off, partly because of shore batteries and gunboats, and partly because a gun exploded aboard the schooner Pert, which mortally injured the schooner's commander and threw the American squadron into confusion. So after this engagement, winter started, which which immobilized ships on both sides. They didn't go, you know, they were probably iced in. <laughs> so... Chauncey, he feared a attack across the ice by the British regular soldiers. So he kept his carpenters busy and having them saw the ice from around his vessels so he could at least bring fire to bear on any attackers. So he kept make he kept the carpenters making like if the gut if the boat's beams 103 feet, 103 feet around the entire vessel so they could rotate it to bring uh, his broadside right into wherever they need it. No, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, winters here in the Midwest, like even before, like before climate change became a thing. Yeah, you could move an army across the ice in theory, you know, and hell, even lately, you know, if it's a decent winter, you can totally park, you know, even big trucks there. So moving men across, not a problem. So the British, you know, they did all that, but the British had no intention of attacking over the ice, at least 
at this stage. Instead, they began building a couple more Corvettes to attempt to match the Madison because Madison was the biggest boat on the, on the water at this point. They were constructing one at Kingston and one at York. But they had difficulties, especially at York, because of disputes between shipwrights. Thomas Plunkett. He had been selected by Lieutenant General Sir George Provost, the Governor General, to oversee the work, and officers such as Captain Andrew Gray, who was a staff officer in the Army in Upper Canada. He, he, you know, he was also, they were butting heads. Right. So, Plucknet's work was disorganized, as was the shipwright at Kingston. Uh, so he was fired and replaced by a, the more experienced Daniel Allen. And then he was in turn fired after fighting with them over working conditions in March of 1813. So he was actually trying to fight for better working conditions for his people. And they were like, oh, screw that. <laughs> yep. They always want to lower the pay and lower the benefits and throw safety concerns out the window. So... Three different officers had been detached by Vice Admiral Herbert Sawyer from the Royal Navy's North American Station in Halifax to the Provisional Marine. I did much over the winter to refit the existing vessels there at Kingston. Now, the Admiralty also appointed Captain James Lucas Yao to command the naval establishment on the Great Lake. So he collected reinforcements and materials in Britain and brought it over the Atlantic early in 1813. So Chauncey had an advantage in ships and men once the ice melted. He and General Henry Dearborn, who was the commander-in-chief of the American armies in the north, they had an opportunity to attack the British and reach Canada and travel up the St. Lawrence. An attack on Kingston could have been decisive, but they persuaded themselves that it was defended by 5,000 British regulars. But in fact, there was only 600. <laughs> so instead, they decided to attack York, which was the provincial capital. So on April 27th, at the Battle of York, they defeated the defenders under Major General Roger Hale Schaffel, and they looted the town. They captured the brig, Duke of Gloucester, and also a number of cannons, which were supposed to go to the British squadron on Lake Erie. Now, the British... They set fire to partially completed Corvette that they were going to call the Isaac Brock to keep it from falling into American hands. So Chauncey and Dearborn, they defeated the British Army on the Niagara River at the Battle of Fort George on May 27th. At both York and Fort George, Chauncey's schooners and gunboats were very, very effective in supporting land troops and landing Marines. They suppressed the British batteries and inflicted heavy casualties on British troops while they were trying to attempt to prevent the American landing. Now, they also left themselves vulnerable to that could have been a very decisive counterattack because since they were preoccupied in the western end of Lake Ontario, Commander Yao arrived in Kingston with 465 officers and seamen of the Royal Navy, and they were to take charge of the British squadron. So they embarked troops under Provost because he happened to be in Kingston on public and army business and just about immediately attacked the American base at the Battle of Sackett's Harbor on May 29th. Now, this was strategically bold, but they also attacked cautiously and then decided to just call it off when they met with stiff resistance. So if this had succeeded, it could have been very turning over the course of the war. 
and they knew this, and they knew logically it would be heavily defended. Yes. But they got cold feet? These guys were very cautious. You have, you have cautious commanders, and those are the guys that you don't want in command when trying to take a strategic place. You want cautious commanders on defense. You want bold commanders on offense. Exactly. So, just like Zap Brannigan, once they reached their killbot kill count, they retreated. Ah, uh, so I, I assume they were very successful in their campaign against the pacifist of, uh, you know, Western Saskatchewan and, you know, laid low the dissidents of neutrality down in Great Michigan. If they had to, yeah. Ah, uh, true heroes. So just before the British caught off their attack and retreated, the Americans had already prematurely set fire to the Duke of Gloucester and a sloop of war that they had under construction, the General Pike, because they thought they were about to be overrun. Mm -hmm. So they set the fire, the British retreat. They're like, oh, crap. So they went to go put out the fire. Thankfully, they succeeded. The Gloucester and a large quantity of stores were destroyed, but the Pike was saved. So Chauncey quickly went back to Sackett's Harbor and then stayed there while waiting for the pike to be completed. And the Americans declined to contest the lake. Yo's squadron assisted in driving the American army on the Niagara Peninsula back into Fort George. And he captured and or destroyed a lot of stores. On July 1st, he decided to attempt to destroy the pike while it was still being fitted out. He decided to mount a raid on Sekis Harbor in a number of small boats, but then he called off the attack because he feared that the deserters would have alerted the American. So he felt he did not have surprise and decided, no, not going to do it. If you're going to attack, you don't blindly commit and dig in your heels, but y you can't get cold feet just because they're putting up a stiff resistance. Well, it's their job to defend it. It's your job to take it. Well, a little bit of foreshadowing here. Remember, this entire conflict is nothing but a large stalemate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Chauncey got underway with a full squadron on July 21st. He thought about assaulting the British defensive positions at Burlington Heights, which was at the western end of the lake. But then he said, no, the defenders are too well prepared. And instead, they went after York again. They briefly captured it. And they actually didn't really destroy that much. And they actually returned some property they looted in the attack that they had already done before. So they went back. Okay, we've captured you again. But sorry about last time. Here's some of your stuff back. How positively cordial of it. So on August 7th, the Americans and Yao encountered each other off the mouth of the Niagara River. And the two squadrons, they spent a number of days very carefully maneuvering around each other. Now, Chauncey, he had an advantage in long guns. So he was trying to wait for calm conditions where he can engage at long range. And Yao, he had the advantage in carronades. So he wanted to have heavy weather so he can close in. So on the night of August 8th, two American schooners, the Hamilton and Scourge, they capsized and sank because of a, a squall that came up suddenly. There were... 72 men on board both of these boats, and 53 of them drowned. Now, for anyone who doesn't live around the Great Lakes, um, I mean, it isn't hyperbole to say that they are inland seas in their size. So if it gets stormy, 
you can easily see waves that are 15, 20 feet high. Like, this isn't just some blustery day on, a, you know, your local fishing lake. Yeah, they're cold lakes, but they are also major, major bodies of water. They're used in trade from the U.S. to Canada, and they also have an outlet to the Atlantic to where a lot of trade... I think they're only called lakes because they're freshwater. Yeah, more than likely. Because, yeah, I think anywhere else they would be seas if they were saltwater. Mm-hmm. So on August 10th, two days later, the British were windward of Chauncey's forces. So Chauncey formed his squadrons in two lines. Six schooners were nearer the British, and the heavier ships were further away to leeward. So as the British edged closer, they started firing. At 11.30, Chauncey ordered his windward line to steer downwind and reform leeward of the heavier vessels. And the two leading schooners, the Growler and Julia, they, well, they failed and were cut off from the rest of Chauncey's squadron. And then rather to try to beat up wind to rescue both of those schooners, Chauncey withdrew downwind. He was trying to get Yao to follow him and lead them, his forces away from those two schooners. But of course, instead, he, Yao concentrated on the two schooners and captured them both. After that, both squadrons withdrew to their, their bases to restock, repair, and then they set back out again. So on September 11th, there was a long-range skirmish off of the Genesee River, which is about 10 miles east of the Niagara. Now, I could say it was indecisive, but we already know that everything here is indecisive. Uh, the British squadron, well, they got becalmed for a number of hours. So the American schooners just fired at them from long range. They were sitting ducks. So the British tried to work their vessels out of range. They were attempting to tow them with boats that were using sweeps, which are long oars. They, you tried to do that through the gun ports of the vessels. They didn't reach the water, did they? Well, they're long, so yeah. Oh, okay. But if they're using the oars through the gun ports, they can't use the guns. Oh, yeah, that, that does complicate things, yes. Now, so all day they were becalmed, getting shot at by long-range cannons. But that evening, a light breeze from the land sprang up and allowed Yao to pull away and withdraw into Amherst Bay. So they didn't meet again until the 28th, and they met in York Bay. Hmm. Chauncey was covering a proposed movement of the American army from the Nigeria to Saget's Harbor, and Yao had just delivered supplies to the British forces on the Nigeria Peninsula. So both squadrons spotted each other early, early in the morning, and then they headed north until Yao was able to send a boat into York with, with some dispatches. He then reversed course and headed south in a very heavy wind. So Yao was ahead and to leeward, and Chauncey has gotten very frustrated by the poor sailing qualities of all of his schooners. Just about all of them. His three fastest vessels, the Pike, the Sylph, and the Madison, they were towing the other schooners, Asp, Ontario, and Fair American, which of course would slow them down even more. So at about 12.40, Yao turned around. He wanted to exchange a single broadside with the Pike when they passed on opposite tacks. And then he wanted to concentrate on the weaker schooners at the rear of Chauncey's line. However, Chauncey, he also reversed course. He turned around, and the Pike and Yao's flagship, 
the wolf ended up exchanging several broadsides on the same tack. The American fire brought down Wolf's mizzen and main topmast, and Yao's second-in-command, Commander Mulcaster, put his ship, the Royal Gorge, between Wolf and the Pike, and backed his sails while the crew of the Wolf cleared away the wreckage and headed downwind towards Burlington Bay at the western end of the lake. So, what all that means is Yao was getting blown to bits. So Mulcaster put his ship right between the two so that his boss can get away. So for quite a while, the two squadrons were actually mixed up together. I, I, I was going to say, like, I'm, I'm trying to keep track of who's where in my head. And it's like, nope, okay, nobody knows where anybody is. The rules are made up. The points don't matter. Exactly. So Chauncey's flag captain, Arthur Sinclair, he actually urged Chauncey to capture the two rearmost British vessels, which were the Brestford and the Melville. And apparently Chauncey, he exclaimed, quote, all or none. So he wanted all of them. He's like, no, not the two rearmost. I want them all. So he went after the wolf. But he also refused to cast off the tow line with the asp. So no other American vessels were able to get within effective range. So the chase lasted around 90 minutes, an hour and a half and Yao dropped anchor off the north shore of Burlington Bay. The wind at this time had risen into a gale, and the American squadron struggled, the pike itself receiving some damage. They were also holed several times beneath the waterline, and they also had a cannon on the forecastle explode, which caused, you know, a lot of destruction and casualty. They also had a number of other cannons split, so they couldn't be used in any case, because they would just burst. Right. So Chauncey called off the battle, stating that if he had tried to continue the attack, both of the British and American squadrons would probably have been grounded in British-held territory. Well, and if there was a storm coming in, that's not something you generally want to stick around for. Well, you know, they have random gales out there. That doesn't mean a storm's coming. Great Lakes are very weather-volatile. Weather Yao made hasty repairs in Burlington Bay. And then Chauncey, you know, he really effectively controlled the lake. Now, on September 29th, there was another gale, and it prevented Chauncey, who was watching Yao, to see him. And Yao escaped from Burlington on October 2nd. So that was a long gale. So the next day, Chauncey attempted to chase him, but he had to guess which way Yao went. And on October 5th, seven vessels were sighted. And they turned out to be gunboats and unarmed British schooners who were transporting troops. One escaped, one was burned, and the other five Chauncey captured. And he took 264 prisoners. So this battle briefly shifted to the head of the St. Lawrence River. The American control of the lake had allowed them to complete the movement of their troops from Fort George to Sackett's Harbor because they had planned an attack on Montreal later this year. So the army under Major General James Watkins moved in a lot of small craft to the French Creek near Pleasant Day, Clayton, New York. And some of the British vessels under Commander Mulcaster bombarded this, their encampment and anchorages until about November 5th, when the American artillery was able to drive them off, setting fire to the brig Earl of Moria because they used, well, they heated up cannonballs and shot them at him. And what? With fire. I, yeah, that doesn't sound like that's a safe thing to do on a wooden sailing vessel. No, this, this, they didn't do this on the sailing vessel. They shot it at a sailing vessel. Oh, okay, the, the shoreborne battery. I see. Yeah. 
yet they were bombarding the shore. So they heated us with cannonballs and fired it and fired back at them. Now, folks, to heat up your cannonballs, you want to set your oven to about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Wait until it's nice and glowing red. Be sure to wear your oven mitts when using your tongs to take them out. And don't leave it in your cannon for too long. Warping of the barrel may occur if you do. Oh, I'm pretty sure that once they put that cannonball on that powder, that powder just went off. It was like, it was probably like a mortar. So you're kind of playing chicken with your hands when you drop that in. Well, I mean, that's usually normal cannon operation anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So the crew ended up scuttling the brig to, to extinguish the fire. And then they later salvaged it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Scuttling is generally sinking the ship intentionally. That is what scuttling is. How are you salvaging that afterwards? You refloat it. You repair whatever it was that you destroyed to sink it, and then you pump the water out. I can't help but feel it'd be more cost-efficient just to make a new one, but what do I know? I'm not a carpenter in wartime. So the American army started to descend on the St. Lawrence, and Chauncey was supposed to blockade the British in Kingston to prevent them from interfering. But an effective blockade is difficult in foul weather, and late autumn means lots of nasty weather. And also there's a lot of inlets to the head of that river. So because of the weather, this allowed Mulcaster's vessel to return to Kingston and embark a detachment of troops under Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Wanton Morrison to pursue the Americans down the river. On November 11th, Morrison's force with three gunboats under Mulcaster defeated the Americans at the Battle of Chrysler's Farm. Now, the last event of the year was the transport of William Henry Harrison's troops from the Niagara to Saget's Harbor to replace Wilkinson's army. However, the Nigeria frontier was left without regular troops, and the British took advantage of this by capturing the fort of Nigeria and the Battle of Buffalo. So over the winter of 1813-14, the Americans took shipbuilder Noah Brown and some shipwrights and materials over to Lake Champlain and allowed them to construct the squadron, which would later win the decisive Battle of Plattsburgh. Now, in Kingston, an officer named Captain Richard O'Connor, he served alongside Yao earlier in his career, and he had been in charge of the dockyards ever since he arrived in May, and he had greatly extended these facilities. Now, Yao had been outgunned by Chauncey's vessels in 1813, So he ordered the construction of two huge frigates, the HMS Prince Regent and the HMS Princess Charlotte. And these were ready shortly after the ice breaks up. So he held the initial advantage. On May 6th, he mounted a raid on Fort Oswego to interrupt the supply line from New York Navy Yard to Saget's Harbor. Now this raid was a little successful because the British captured several unarmed vessels which included uh, the schooner Growler, which this is its third time changing hands now. (laughs) So instead of hot potato, it's hot Growler. Mm -hmm. Is it your time or is it my turn to have the Growler? Captain, should we just uh, throw the American colors into the lake? No, we don't need to be rude. They'll get their hands back on it soon enough. Just put it in the linen closet. Yeah, that's where we found our flag when we took it back. Yeah, they're being cordial, no reason we can't. Now, Yao's main objective had been to try to capture the heavy guns that Chauncey's 
intended to have on his frigates and heavy brigs. Now, he did capture seven of them because they were on the Growler, but most of the American guns had not actually arrived at Oswego yet and were still 12 miles up the Oswego River. So Yao and some troops under Lieutenant General George Drummond, they decided not to try to capture them. Instead, they established a blockade to prevent them from reaching Saget's Harbor. But Lieutenant Woosley, a few weeks later, tried to take several boats loaded with cannons, cables, and other stores for Chauncey's new ships to Saget's Harbor, but was driven into a creek a few miles south of the base. So a party of British Marines and sailors under Captain Pompham went up the creek to cut out, quote unquote, the American boats. But on May 30th, they were in turn ambushed and were either all captured or killed at the Battle of Big Sandy Creek. So Pompam was not all pomp and circumstance. Absolutely not. So shortly after, Chauncey, he got his gun and completed two frigates named the Superior and Mohawk. Well, one's in the wrong lake. Yeah, the Superior should be in Lake Superior. Now, these two frigates were even larger than Yao's frigates that he built to be larger than the Americans had in the first place, and the heavily armed brig sloops Jones and Jefferson. However, the squadron wasn't ready until mid-July, and then was again delayed in port until the end of July, because Chauncey, he got sick and refused to say, okay, XO, go, go, go get him. He was like, I'm sick, so everybody else has to be sick too. Everybody get in bed and wait. But, but, but Captain, you're contagious. We, we don't know what he was sick with. He could have just had the vapors. Oh, well, mercy me. So, you know, of course, this seriously hindered the operations of the army and actually forced Major General Jacob Brown to abandon an attack that he wanted to do on Kingston. And instead, he ended up having to attack across the upper Nigeria River. Now, when the squadron eventually did go out into the lake, Yao was out. He quickly retreated to Kingston, which was a pattern that was going to be set for the rest of the year. Whenever a flotilla had a disadvantage in ships or guns, they stayed in the harbor until they built something bigger. That's not the most unsensible thing to do. But again, this is why it's a stalemate. Oh, they just built something <laughs> bigger. They're coming out. We're going back. So another apt description for the War of 1812 is how the United States and Russia had the Cold War between the 40s and 90s. This was the lukewarm uh, war of 1812 to 1815. It got hot once in a while, but most of the time they were just working on getting that boil going and it was taking forever. Yeah, this was mostly, uh, at least in the lake areas, the Great Lake areas, it was just an arms race. Oh, you have a ship with 30 cannons? I'm going to make a ship with 32. Captain, the Yankees have a 32-gun ship. Make Oz have 36. That's exactly what was happening. So when the Americans controlled the lake, they destroyed a 10-gun brig under construction at Parasqui Island on the St. Lawrence before it could be launched. And on August 5th, three British vessels, the Netley, Charwell, and Magnet, sailed from York to the Nigeria River with supplies. The Magnet had sailed a little bit after the other two, and all of a sudden Chauncey's squadron appears. The Magnet tried to, but was unable to escape, and ran aground six miles west of Fort George. So the British removed some stores and set the Magnet on fire, and it blew up before American landing parties could take possession of it. 
Now the Magnex commander, Lieutenant George Hawksworth, well, they court-martialed him. They found him guilty of causing the loss of his vessel and was fired from the Royal Navy. So he defected to the Americans. <laughs> well, as long as he didn't burn any American ships too. So Chauncey concentrated on blockading Kingston, but Yao had no intention of leaving it while he had, you know, inferior vessels. And he was, Chauncey was criticized by Major General Jacob Brown and a lot of other army commanders for failing to assist the American army on the Niagara Peninsula any further than those blockades. So this greatly contributed, at least in their eyes, to the indecisive result of the campaign. So rivalry between armed forces goes back far, far, far back in the annals of history for the United States then. Oh, yeah. Well, any branch, okay. any country, even back in the, you know, 23 AD, back when Greek was being attacked by Persia and vice versa. The army and navy hated each other then. I'm going to be that guy briefly. That was like uh, 350 BC. <laughs> okay, fine. Be that guy. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to be that guy. Like, I, I know this isn't the Greek naval history podcast. Yeah, that's why I don't know the date. <laughs> also, fun fact, despite what 300 may have told you, Xerxes was not a seven and a half foot tall, bedazzled god king. No, I wouldn't have thought that in the first place. Okay. So, only three small American vessels were maintaining a loose blockade of the Nigeria River. The crews of three small British vessels also blockaded the same river. They ended up bordering and capturing two American schooners that belonged to the squadron on Lake Erie. And then they took part in a storming attempt during the siege of Fort Erie, which failed with very heavy casualties. So on September 21st, Chauncey, his ships transported Major General George Izzard's division from Sackett's Harbor to the Genesee River to reinforce the American army on the Nigeria. Izzard refused to make an all-out attack on the outnumbered British army and eventually retreated to the American side of the Nigeria. We're seeing this a lot, too. We outnumber them. Let's retreat on both sides. <laughs> they wouldn't dare pursue us if we outnumber them. That would be tactical folly. So Yao learned that Chauncey was constructing more frigates, and so he ordered a line of ships to be made as well. Originally, he had been authorized to construct a third-rate ship of 74 guns. But Yao and his local shipwright, William Bell, they decided on plans rather more ambitious. So on October 15th, Yao launched the three-decked first-rate class of the line St. Lawrence, which on the 19th of October was struck by lightning. It very <laughs> narrowly avoided destruction. I'm going to make the most amazing cool, unsinkable ship on the Great Lakes. I'll be unstoppable. That's great. Watch this. Zeus? At two? So with the burning first-rate ship because it was struck by lightning, Chassis like, nope, we're out. We're going back into Sackett's Harbor. And so Yao dominate the lake until November 21st, when winter comes in. And the war is put on hold for three to six months. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chauncey and Yao both prefer to cruise off the enemy's anchorage, which also neglected the British side of the war effort just as much as it neglected the American side 
of the war effort. So the British army had very little food until pretty much the very last couple days before the lake froze over. So the American Assabkits Harbor over the winter immediately started building two ships of the line even larger than the St. Lawrence. But the British construction matched the American attempts to regain the lead. Now, though, Provost and Yao really, really started to hate each other following the Battle of Plattsburgh. Provost had recommended that a rear admiral be appointed to Quebec to superintend the Royal Navy's establishment on the lakes. But before this could be considered, Provost himself was fired. They say it's probably because of Yao's complaints on his conduct during the Plattsburgh campaign and also because of his fights with the veteran army officers of the Peninsula War, which were set to re reinforce the troops in Canada. The Admiralty nevertheless replaced Yao as well on grounds of not communicating with them. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fair. The guy wasn't making his reports. Well, I mean, he's too busy playing with Tinker Toys and Lincoln Logs effectively trying to make the coolest ship in the Great Lakes. He has his priorities. He can't be bothered to write communications. That's what a scribe is for. Watching ships get built is much more important than writing down that all you're doing is watching ships get built. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk with you, my your majesty. What? I'm too busy. His replacement, Captain Edward Owen... He actually didn't get there until after the Treaty of Ghent ended hostilities. So after the Treaty of Ghent, a separate pact, which was known as the rush Bagot Treaty, was signed in 1817, which was an attempt to limit the number and strength of warships that could be on the lakes. So on Lake Ontario, Britain and America could keep in commission only one vessel each of no more than 100 tons and only armed with one 18-pound gun. No other armed ships could be built, and those already built needed to be dismantled. Hmm. But, you know, what actually happened was very few of the existing ships were broken. The British, they constructed a storehouse referred to as Stone Frigate to keep the rigging and other fittings. The building actually survives to this day. It is a dormitory to Hudson Squadron at the Royal Military College of Canada, and is actually referred to the same name. So, in theory, because they did this, they could have recommissioned their entire squadron within days. But by 1827, all of the ships were rotting away and unfit for service. So the stores were auctioned off in 1834, and the surviving ships were written off or disposed of, and several were actually sunk in Navy Bay near Kingston. So what's the standard procedure for scuttling a ship like that once it's gotten to the point of, you know, it's in such disrepair and poor condition that we're better off just letting it, you know, decompose at the bottom of the lake? Would they just, uh, selectively drill holes and then have a race up the stairs? More than likely, they would just set off an explosion. Oh, okay. That's what we do nowadays, too. A lot of times when we scuttle our own ships to make artificial reefs, we would use them as target practice or set off controlled explosions to sink them in a very specific way. Well, I imagine gun crews like the first one a bit better. Gives them an excuse to make some loud booms. Target practice against an actual boat is very informative and is very useful because you'll be able to know what your weapons are actually capable of. Oh. Now, on a target ship that you're actually trying to sink, if you're trying to make a reef, 
an artificial reef, all those watertight doors are going to be open. So the effectiveness of your weapons are going, those results are going to be skewed. Right. Now, if you're doing war games and you have a ship that you're just going to sink and use for target practice, those watertight doors will be closed. Then you can see exactly what's going to happen, mostly. Because on a normal vessel, crude vessel, you're also going to have damage control teams going out battling the that damage. And the vessel maneuvering to try and evade fire, and they'll be shooting back at you. So, it's very educational, but not the best as, as well. All right, well, I think... We're going to end it here. Next time, we're going to get into what happened to the American squadron at this point in the end of the year. And then we'll move on to the Battle of Plattsburgh. We'll dive deeper into that battle. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can at U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. You can now tweet at us at USN History Pod. So, Stephen... Before you go up and grab some prop wash to take over to the Airedale so they can start washing their planes, you have anything to say? Well, we don't pay to advertise this show, so we'd love it if you'd spread the word about our podcast and leave a review so we can hear your thoughts on what we've been putting out. If you'd like, we can even read it on the air. Now, uh, Captain, what's an airplane? I, and what's a prop? Is that a weird sail? Is that what you're calling the, the sweeps now? How much whiskey have you been drinking? It's interesting how you like to jump to the modern times, but then when I do it, you like to deny me of my modern time. (laughs) (laughs) U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 